Good evening and welcome to the history of lubrication. I'm your host, Gabriel Pericas, and we are again recording live in front of a wonderful audience here at the Emily Harvey Foundation in New York City. And before we begin today's episode, I wanted to make a brief comment about the sound that we are using here for the introductions, uh, because uh, since the first episode aired, some people have asked me about it. It is actually an an edited recording of the sound of the heater in my bedroom. It is one of these old cast iron radiators that works with water vapor and every now and then it releases the pressure by blowing the excess through this little valve and it makes this annoying oscillating whistle. And it's unpredictable so, so every time it burst it would startle me, right? And so it was it was particularly annoying while I was focused trying to uh, write the scripts for the shows. So at some point I thought why don't we co-op the sound and begin each episode with it, giving us a show the nuance of an agitating interruption. And so we incorporated the sound in lieu of a jingle. And, uh, but I also thought that it sounded like the materialization of my own confidence as a writer, which also has these ups and downs. So I wrote the following joke. The valve of the radiator is blowing self-esteem. In the last episode, I shared with you my recursive obsession with this geometry book written in the late 60s by an Italian scholar named Carmelo Taviano. The book is still outside on one of the windows here at the Emily Harvey, still in pretty good shape, but slowly being torn apart by the inclement weather. Now, you remember certain people found my obsession with it an interesting per se. So this time, I use that story simply as a build-up to today's episode in which I will uh, be very honest about the reasons behind my own personal intermittent fascination with it. And I have consolidated those in an extensive letter addressed to Lino Cabezas, the geometry professor who made me acquainted with Ottaviano's book. I sent him a long overdue response to his last email from 2010, which he probably didn't expect at this point. And I will read that to you in a bit. But before I do, maybe it is a good idea that we examine the book in a bit more detail. By now... Uh, you must be eager to know what is so special about this, otherwise an interesting scholarly publication. Well, as I said, Ottaviano's goal was to prove the existence of this ubiquitous abstract ratio, the Divina Proporzione, as a structuring law for all the beautiful things of the world. And I know that in many ways this is a problematic hypothesis to begin with, right? But I will disregard that, and instead I will focus on the flimsy system that he developed to prove it. So what he did was, he took a piece of cardboard from a shoebox or something and cut spirals of it. Like not any spiral, just uh, um, golden ratio spirals. And then he used those pieces of cardboard as templates to draw spirals with a sharpie on top of found images. Now, is this strong enough evidence to support his claim? I don't know. Right? I know close to nothing about concealed universal abstractions. And to his credit, some section of the spirals always matches some section of the profile of whatever is portrayed in the picture. 
And Ottaviano performed this operation on more than 500 images that are included in the book organized in the following 12 categories. The first group is called plants and trees. Second group, fruits, berries, and leaves. Third group, flowers. The fourth, animals. The fifth, prehistoric animals. The sixth, the human body. The seventh, waves, waterfalls, and clouds. The eighth, eruptions of the solar corona, northern lights, and the atomic bomb. The ninth, microorganisms. The tenth, galaxies. The eleventh, the beauty of the human body. Now, here is where his encyclopedic effort begins to tremble, because whereas all previous groups featured scientific-looking images, this group is comprised exclusively of images of nude women cut from erotic magazines. And finally, the 12th group, Pathologies of Organisms, which includes two kinds of images, decaying trees and naked human bodies of either fat or skinny people, and unsurprisingly, upon these images, the spirals don't fit. The count so far is 541 images with spirals on them, sometimes even multiple spirals. So it was already absurd enough, right? But it gets worse. Because in the third Akerchuta, or extended edition of the book, there is a 13th group called Encora, which in this case translates as, wait, there is more, the beauty of the human body. And it features 50 gratuitous extra photographs of nude women from erotic magazines with spirals on their faces, their breasts, and their buttocks. Now, the misogynous objectification of the female body here comes as no surprise, right? And even less so within the one-dimensional mindset of a book, which at the end of the day is about standardization. What is surprising is the blatant, preposterous, and justified excess of erotic imagery and how he got away with it, right? The only, I've been thinking, and the only circumstance under which this would be explicable would be if the book had only one goal, and it was to serve as camouflage for the circulation of sexually arousing images among the fellow academic men of Padova, who also need to masturbate and most likely lack imagination. In any case, now that you know the secret of the book, let me read to you the email I sent to my professor. Dear Lino, this is Gabriel Pericas. In 2006, I was in the geometry class that you taught at the School of Fine Arts in Barcelona. Back then, you mentioned a book that has been stuck in my mind for the last 12 years. In 2010, I wrote you an email inquiring about it. You were very generous with me, and yet I left your message unresponded. Now, eight years later, I want to write that wrong. The book I'm referring to is La Legge della Bellezza come Legge Universale della Natura by Carmelo Ottaviano. I'm sure you remember it. In it, Ottaviano tries to prove that there is a universal law based on the golden ratio that structures the beautiful things in the world. And at the end, he includes slightly pornographic images of women. Now, I'm sure the general idea behind this theory was widespread, because on the one hand, it's such an appealing idea, right? It entices our primal longing for certainty. It revokes the idea that the world is simple, purposeless chaos. Who doesn't like that? And on the other hand, it is kind of convincing, right? If they show you all these images of, of shells of snails and things like that. But I'm sure 
Carmelo Taviano was not the only advocate of it. So why did you bring this particular book to the attention of your students? Is it only due to this paradoxical use of lustful images within the otherwise rational and pure field of geometry? Before I hear your answers, however, I would like to share with you the particular reasons behind my own recurring fascination with this book. These days, I'm trying to use Ottaviano as an example of what I call an unhappy academic man, which is a facile symbolic figure that antagonizes the thinking of George Bataille, which I'm using to ground my current research about human saliva. But this is a longer story. When I wrote to you back in 2010, my interest in Ottaviano was more superficial. I'd made this spontaneous virtual performance that I regarded as a reflection upon my responsibility as a young art practitioner. Uh, one day, I was practicing cyber sex. I was masturbating on Skype with a friend of mine. And in the midst of it, perhaps pushed by a constant surreptitious sense of guilt, I asked my friend if she would try and rotate one of her breasts over itself. Now that request was not a fetish of mine. It was supposed to be an artistic gesture, right? The thing is, I found the reciprocal interruption of sexual gratification and art making an interesting problem to tackle. And that, along with the spiral-like shape that formed on my friend's twisted breast, reminded me of Ottaviano's book, because even though I didn't mention it in my email, I did remember the erotic images covered in spirals that you showed us in class. Some years later, I returned to the book, but in that occasion, I overlooked the sexual aspect of it. I focused on Ottaviano's belief in a universal structure governing the visible world, which I thought deserved criticism in and of itself. But most importantly, I was interested in his method of overlaying schematic drawings onto photographs. I found that a superposition aimed at uncovering an underlying abstraction is an ironic idea. Lino, have you, have you seen my work? I was somewhat known when I lived in Barcelona. Now I live in New York and nobody knows about me. But recently I made a series of sculptures replicating the structure used by a street magician to perform levitation stunts. And I'm quite satisfied with them. And guess what? They were inspired by schematic drawings on photographs. The drawings that informed my sculptures, however, were only unveiling a hidden mechanical structure, nothing comparable to Ottaviano's unveiling of an absolute universal structure. However, in my mind, both the idiots who reveal magic tricks on the internet and Ottaviano share, on the one hand, the faith that there is a truth concealed behind the visible, immediate reality, and on the other hand, an urgency to share the truth with the world. There is something that is very masculine about this entitlement to convince others of your worldview, and Ottaviano's indulgence in his bombastic heterosexual libido makes this very apparent. Now, this may sound like a tangent to you, but in Brooklyn, near where I live, there is a street named after John Hancock, one of the signees of the United States Declaration of Independence. He is remembered because his signature on it was so flamboyant that his name became synonym of signature in the US. People say, put your John Hancock on this document, please, right? So, and if you look at it, it is true that his is by far the biggest and more embellished of all signatures. So, a couple days ago, I was waiting for a friend at the intersection of Tompkins and Hancock, and my friend was late, so I couldn't help noticing that the name Hancock on, on the street sign sounded a lot like Hancock, which would be the name, I thought, given to a person who, instead of two hands, would have been born with one hand and at the tip of the other arm, instead of a hand, would have a penis. 
right? And I thought, well, if I was Carmelo Ottaviano, that would be very convenient. I could simply use that extra penis to write my book. People would call me Carmelo Handcock Ottaviano. Then my friend arrived and I shared with her my Hancock Handcock observation and she said she found it amusing but unfortunately she said it is in fact incorrect. Because in English she said it is the former word of a compound word, the one that acts as a qualifying modifier of the latter. This is why she said Spider-Man is a man with certain attributes that are most commonly seen in spiders. Spider-Man, she asked me, is not a spider with human characteristics, is he? I said, no he isn't. Consequently, she continued, Handcock would be the name of a person who, instead of two hands, would have been born with one hand at the tip of each arm, plus an additional third hand in between his legs, where you would normally expect the penis. But hey, she said, it's fine, I like how you say it. Ultimately, the version that she proposed was even better, right? Because if I was Carmelo Taviano, I'm sure a third hand would be very convenient, you know, to hold my templates uh, in place. So, dear Lino, let's call him Carmelo Handcock Otaviano, indeed. Carmelo Handcock Otaviano. But don't get me wrong, Lino. Otaviano being horny doesn't bother me. I personally take libidinal forces very seriously, and I'm not judgmental of people using them to fuel the research. In his case in particular, I actually find it adorable, the pathetic image of him going to a newsstand somewhere in Rome in the late 1960s and purchasing a pile of soft porn magazines while telling the guy at the counter, no, 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 you don't understand. This is actually research. It's for a thing at the university you don't understand. It's for geometry purposes. And then, the image of him going back to his apartment on Via Mesopotamia 21, where he would sit in a room alone in his apartment on Via Mesopotamia 21, I would take out his templates and draw spirals on the pages, look at the geometric abstractions behind these images, ah, while slobbering. Ah, oh, this form follows the Divina Proporzione. I think this is a universal truth right here. Like the sad fascist man he chose to be. I hope you're doing well otherwise, Lino. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Best regards, Gabriel. That was the email I sent to Lino Cabezas, uh, but unfortunately we reached the end of our episode today. I'll keep you posted if he responds. In the meantime, please keep sending your stories and general ideas about spit to spit at thehistoryoflubrication.org. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and visit our website where you can support us by purchasing the limited edition coffee mug for $20 domestic shipping included. This was The History of Lubrication, episode number two. I am Gabriel Pericas. Marina Miranda created the sound for the show, which was recorded at the Emily Harvey Foundation in New York in April of 2018. Thank you for listening.